Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, I'm going to start today by encouraging you to support RACES, a 501c3 nonprofit agency that promotes justice by providing free and low-cost legal services to underserved immigrant children families, and refugees. You might have seen them in the news recently. They've been raising money to help the kids and families at the border. If you would like to support this organization, you can do so at racestexas.org. That's R-A-I-C-E-S Texas.org. R-A-I-C-E-S Texas.org. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. How's it going? Right. This is the Other People right. Podcast. Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, it's on fire. The city's on fire. It's smoky. It's hot. It's dangerous. It's summertime. It's 120 degrees. It's 100 degrees at night. There's a hot wind blowing. It smells like fire. It's like a blow dryer in your face at night. It's crazy. The Griffith Park Observatory, as we speak, is almost uh, in flames. I think the L.A. Fire Department has it under control, but it came very close, and it would have been a heartbreaker because it's one of my favorite places in the city. It's a beautiful spot. It figures, I think, into the uh, movie Rebel Without a Cause. Isn't that right? Doesn't, isn't there a scene? Isn't there like a fight scene? James Dean up there? I want to say Dennis Hopper appears in that scene, almost like a, as an extra or in a bit role. It was one of his earliest parts. I think I have that right. Anyway, I uh, I have Otessa Moshfeg on the program today. I'm very pleased about this. I've been wanting to talk to her for a while now. Over the past few years, she's had an incredible run of success in publishing. I think one of the better runs of success, of, uh, success for any young writer working in the United States of America. In 2014, she published a novella called McGlue. It won the Fence Modern Prize. It won the Believer Book Award. And then in uh, 2015, she published her breakout novel, Eileen. That was published by Penguin Press, and uh, it was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. It won the Penn Hemingway Award. I think it was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She then uh, published uh, Homesick for Another World, an acclaimed story collection, and a story prize finalist. And uh, what am what am I missing? I mean, all of this within the last four or five years. Incredible. So 
A lot to talk about with her. She has a new novel out, also on Penguin Press, called My Year of Rest and Relaxation. She was nice enough to come over and talk with me shortly before leaving for her big book tour. So let's get to it. This is my conversation with Otessa Moshfeg, and her new novel, One More Time, is called My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Life gets boring when you're only living one way for too long. Or when you're, like, super self-focused? Yeah. I mean, actually, I don't think my life ever really was boring, but too much time in isolation. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't regret anything, you know? Like, if I had never met Luke, my life would be something else, and I might be happy to have it, but shit happens. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just reading something, like, yesterday, and it was one of these moments where I'm reading, and I'm sort of nodding, and the... It's kind of one of these Buddhist books and the guy's like, you know, you can't really judge an event as being good or bad unless you have like cosmic perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, that sort of train of thought. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, cause like, who knows, you know, like maybe something that seems horrible now in the grand scheme of things might be net positive. Right. But then I started thinking about like truly horrible things that happen on this planet. I started to doubt that line of thinking. Like, how could you ever say like a Holocaust is, well, who knows? You know, it seems like objectively horrible. Well, it's really politically incorrect to have that kind of cosmic thinking about genocide. Right. right? <laughs> um, but in the bigger picture, you know, if we look at like the life of the human race makes sense. Like there's been genocide from the beginning. I mean, I don't really know if that's true, um, but Warring factions. Warring. I mean, we're a violent animal, and we're we can we are very easily perverted by our own greed and power. So, of course, there's going to be some, some terrible shit that we do to to each other, and not, not that that makes me happy, but I can also kind of accept it. I mean, maybe that's maybe maybe I'm wrong to feel so immoral but it and you know people will think that i'm a bad person or something but i don't feel like i can really exist and in in the binary of this is good and this is bad without becoming kind of fascistic about everything and i don't know if i'm gonna if i'm gonna accept that um if I'm going to accept one thing, I kind of have to accept everything. So, and who am, who am I to say what's wrong? I don't know. I was just watching. I had an I had an interesting like day yesterday of what I ingested in terms of media. For some reason, I started watching terror the uh, footage from the Paris terror attacks uh, a couple of years ago. The one at the uh, the uh, that the rock concert. The, the, yeah, there was the one at the club. There there were um, some explosions around the uh, soccer stadium, and then there was this street corner that got shot at, where people were drinking and eating in these two restaurants, like restaurant and a bar. Was this the Netflix documentary <clears throat> about it? Because they they just released. You one. know, it was, but it was boring. So, oh. I, and and my instinct is just to go look for the YouTube videos. And, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had watched them all when when that happened, um, and I was actually supposed to go to Paris, 
soon after that happened and and ended up canceling that trip. And then I was supposed to have a residency in Paris that I ended up canceling too. So I don't know. I mean, this this is a um, now that I'm thinking about why I'm bringing this up in the context of like karmic amorality. Is that the word? But yeah, if that if that terrorist attack hadn't happened, this is how selfish my my thinking has to be sometimes in order to be like I can live on the planet where people go around shooting other people. If that hadn't happened, I would have gone to Paris, and then my life wouldn't have happened the way that it is now. I wouldn't, you know, I right. would I would be different. Maybe I would have gone to Paris and like stepped in front of a truck. I don't know. Yeah. Um. But so it isn't like, oh, thank God there was that terrorist attack because my life is great now. It's like, no, there's there's a cause and effect of everything. And you have to you have to appreciate that in some way and accept. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, like this all could be total bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I struggle with it. Like last night I was walking my dog and it was like 10 o'clock at night. It was like 97 degrees. And the wind was blowing. It was like this hot sort of like convection oven. Yeah, feeling. last night was crazy. Yeah, and I was just like, I just got kind of gloomy about the state of the world and the future of humanity and the world that my kids are going to, you know, all these thoughts kind of go through your head. Like, what are we going to leave them? What is happening with the climate? And all, like all that sort of train of thought. And then I was thinking about like the species like broadly and what it would take for us to maybe wake up from the trance that, we tend to live in and like the violence that you were talking about earlier, those kinds of baser instincts, like, is there some sort of like massive evolutionary catastrophe that's going to have to happen in order for human beings to maybe start behaving differently or being in the world differently? It's a grim thought. It's like, is that what it's going to take? Like, can't we figure it out without something horrible happening? I think a lot of people are asking that question, honestly, Brad. Yeah. Like a lot of people I talk to, they're like, what's going to happen? Like, this world is so... Is it, you can swear on this podcast, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Like, this world is so fucked up. Like, are, it, the, is the way to save it, like, for just humans to just completely self-destruct? Like, do we, like, do we need a World War Three? to, you know, like, does America need to fall? All, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Does Does the planet need to die, you know? for this to be somehow over but um i feel like that's but i feel like apocalyptic thinking has been happening for millennia maybe but the stakes are higher now i i think that though we've we've thought ourselves into this box right where like we think we have all this knowledge and information because we're good scientists whatever but actually we don't know shit and we live in a really super, most of us live in a really superficial world where we like are born, go to school so that we can get a job, so we can make money to pay for our life, and then we die. <laughs> and it's like that, where's the evolution in that? I mean, we've just been sustaining this capitalist consumerist society and not. I mean, I think it's awesome that people are asking this question, like, is it going to take a you know, worldwide calamity for shit to get better? And I and usually I, like, it seems like looking at history, that is the that's one way that it happens. Like, well, we're we we suffer and then we grow. I mean, pain is a touchstone for growth, blah, 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 blah. But I also I mean, there has to be another way. 
There has to be another way. And, you know, um, to tell you more about what the media I consumed yesterday, um, after I watched the the footage of the terrorist attack in Paris, which is just like so fucking disturbing and so sad, I went to see that new documentary about uh, Mr. Rogers. Oh, you did? Yeah. I was trying to get a friend of mine to go with me. He's like, I don't want to see that. And I was like, really? Hmm. I thought it, I, it's exactly the kind of movie I want to see. What's your friend's problem? I don't know. I, you know, he only, what does he want to go see? He likes to go to horror movies. Oh, then he really needs to see this movie. <laughs> it's amazing. I, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's a, an amazing documentary, um, but he was amazing in his project and how much he cared about children. And, and, and this question that you have, like, what are we leaving for our children? Um, I mean, I don't want to give it away, but if you, it, it, uh, I, I went with a really close friend of mine and she cried the whole time and I didn't. And it reminded me that I was all, I was a really stoic child. And, um, you know, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers and his songs and, and I recognized that I didn't like, I didn't like a lot of the show because when he went into that fantasy world where the, where there was the king, I was scared of that king. Like that king made me feel bad. It's a king puppet. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't, and so I missed out on a lot of the the meaning of of what was going on in that show. But so it was really cool to see the documentary as an adult and see that this guy Fred Rogers was really. He, uh, it, it seemed like his project was working on two levels. I mean, one was. He see he's kind of um, like a prophet in a way, and like a prophet for children. I mean, like teaching children how to be self-accepting and express their feelings and have feelings, and like stuff that's the absolute op- like absolute opposite of what everything else on TV is telling us to do. I mean, everything else on TV is like act fake, look perfect, buy shit. Yeah, buy buy shit, be rich. I mean, this this guy was like, I love you just the way you are, and um, he was so kind. He was so he was so kind and really radical. Yeah. I mean, when you when you look at what he was actually doing, um, but and then. On another level, I mean, I think this was what was cool about seeing the documentary and all the behind the scenes and um, interviews with people who were close to Mr. Rogers was that it also seemed like it was a simulacrum, simulacrum, how do you say that word? Simulacrum. Simulacrum <laughs> of his own struggles with self-esteem um, and that each character was sort of a part of him. I don't know. It was just... It was it was really touching. It made me want to be a nicer person. And I'm like, if there's a, n- a nicer person in that, you know, sometimes my response to people is just immediately defensive. Like, oh, I meet you. I don't know what's going on in your interiority, but I'm just going to assume that you're judging me right. and that you're an <laughs> asshole. So I'm going to be defensive and cold and not let you in because I don't want to feel vulnerable and I don't trust you. Yeah. And um, I was watching the documentary and I was thinking, like, I was like, okay, I know that that's something that I do, you know, like socially, it's hard for me to want to trust people. Um, and I don't think that I'm crazy, you know, to have that part of my personality. People, a lot of people can be assholes and like, you know, there are a lot of re- 
there's a lot of um, examples I could point to. It was like, well, see, I shouldn't have been, I, I shouldn't have trusted that person, you know, so it's a learned behavior. But um, the message that Mr. Rogers had about um, just, you know, straight up kindness and um, having an open heart for, to others and so that your heart can be also open to you, to you was made me think that I should maybe just calm down, <laughs> right. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, like there's a simplifying aspect to like your kindness. Yeah. Like you can, I can get really lost in the weeds, um, uh, on philosophy and, you know, it's very easy to, to tie yourself in knots over that stuff. But when someone's just like, Hey, you know, be kinder to other people, be kinder to yourself. And then they actually embody that. That's the mm -hmm. most important thing is that he's authentic. Mm -hmm. Like not that he didn't have his low moments and his flaws, just like any human being. I don't want to like, I think it gets dangerous to sort of uh, deify, but uh, he, by all accounts was genuinely a sweetheart mm -hmm. and really tried to live that. And that's inspiring. Yeah. And when we talk about, or we go back to talking about like, you know, what's needed for this planet and for this species uh, in order for us to right the ship a little bit and live in a more, in a saner way. It's like an evolution in consciousness. That's really what it is. Mm -hmm. And what is it going to take to foment that? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we need like a Mr. Rogers, <laughs> you know, somebody who can speak to us and get to us. Um, I think getting to people when they're young is, is a good idea. You and know? using and using television, I mean, that I, like that show couldn't that that show would fail miserably now. I think. I mean, mm. it was on PBS, but it was also on at a time. I guess it, cable was just dawning, but the dial was a lot more constricted. Right. You know, there weren't seven million things to watch. Yeah. So I remember it was like Sesame Street, The Electric Company, Mister Rogers. If I'm being honest, as a kid, Mister Rogers was like my least favorite. I was a little bored. Mm -hmm. I always like to guess what color sweater he was going to pick out of the closet. Like mm -hmm. what, what is the card, you know, the cardigan going to be, I didn't hate it, mm -hmm. but I also feel a little poisoned because I can remember one of my neighbor's moms. She was the mom that we could call like Linda, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like Mrs. Uh, you know, it was, we called her Linda and she was like, you know, Mr. Rogers is uh, he's a creep. I don't let my kid watch that. Mm. she sort of like, it was sort of like one of these cynical views, mm -hmm. you know, what's this guy in the cardigan doing? Right. But I heard that as a kid and the fact that I remember it now means it must've had an impact on my view of the show. Sure. But that's, you know, I, I realized that and my thoughts have shifted. Like, I definitely think he was a, a good soul. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I think my thoughts shifted after seeing this documentary. If you had asked me like, what's Mr. Rogers deal? Like the day before yesterday, I've been like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because so many images that we have in media now about men who are supposed to be um, altruistic turns out they're doing really fucked up shit mm. um, in private. So yeah, like we have this thing bred into our culture, like distrust men expressing kind kindness and compassion because they're probably um, fucking children. <laughs> right. You know, well, we, that, that's the truth. We have so many examples. Uh, it's like, especially when somebody is outwardly advocating, like I think of Bill Cosby, who was always mm -hmm. like Mr. Jello pudding pops and I love kids and like tuck your shirt in and get your education. And mm -hmm. then it's like, Oh, 
you know, there's a hypocrite or you have, I mean, the, the list goes on. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like you've like in the last couple of years, you've seen a lot more dominoes start to fall and there's been like a real, I don't know, coming to light of the hypocrisy and like the darkness below the surface that, uh, feels unprecedented to me. What do you think the long-term effects of this will be? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I, I hope that there's a shift in behavior that's positive. I hope that there's an assertion of strength and power um, on the part of decent people, um, and vulnerable people, especially women, children, minority groups that, uh, you know, recalibrates things in terms of balance. But I, I can't like sit here and tell you with confidence that I know how it's going to shake out. Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and I also think that there is some danger to like to play the other side of it. And this is an unpopular thought, but one that I have is that, you know, there's a lot of convictions of people uh, and by convictions, I don't mean strongly held beliefs. I mean, like, like mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the, uh, legal sense, like people are getting tried and convicted very quickly and it usually happens on social media. There's an accusation and then there's just this banishment and mm -hmm. there's this mass assumption of guilt that happens so quickly that it does make my head spin a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I worry about, I worry about that. Mm -hmm. I worry about how that might manifest uh, not necessarily. I mean, I, I worry about it broadly. I, I worry about it most politically. Um, and I worry about it on the left mm -hmm. and I think of it in a longer term sense, mm -hmm. you know, there's something fascistic about it. Um, just like, a. I don't know. I just use the word fascistic. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think you're, you're spot on. Okay. Cause it just, yeah. okay. Well then I am, <laughs> <laughs> but so it's like, it's complicated. Yeah. And I think that maybe the impulse is to want to make things simple, you know, when, especially when it comes to matters of justice, it's like right, wrong, just like what we were talking about, right, wrong, black, white, good, bad, you know, and I tend to live in a world of gray mm -hmm. and it can be a little bit disorienting for me. Um, to have those thoughts and feelings and confusions, but also feel like to express them, especially in a public forum like social media, uh, it can be a little dangerous because you're like, oh God, do I even want to invite this? Because if you stick your neck out and like fumble with your words trying to express this confusion, you can get slapped down pretty quickly. And then yeah. you just have this chaos and stress in your life that, you know, do I really need that? But <laughs> if you don't make the effort to express that, then I think it cheapens the discourse. You have a lot mm -hmm. of people, it's a silencing, you know, mm -hmm. and you have this, you leave that you, you basically, uh, leave the field to those who might, um, have the, the other line of thinking. And I think it's, it's a, the discourse is less rich, mm -hmm. you know, there's less freedom of thought. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the loudest voices are not the ones that are not necessarily the most subtle or thoughtful. Um, I feel I feel like I have I'm in a bit of a privileged position around this topic to speak openly in public, speak publicly about what I think you're talking about without worrying that people are going to say I'm being. Uh, I don't know. Macho or. Yeah, I'm like uh, a white guy named Brad. Yeah. Like I have a nice house. Like I'm like the worst. Uh I'm not the worst, but I'm like, I'm not in the position to be like picking up a megaphone and 
expounding about this, I feel like. Well, because you've probably been terrified of, of the backlash that, that might happen against you. I mean, I don't blame you for being scared that people are going to come after you um, if you say something to like to one thing wrong. Them. Yeah, like one thing wrong. Yeah. Like, it, like the the problem is, or like the the irony is that like there's so much agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm generally in favor of believing people when they say they've been victimized. I'm definitely, you know, what I'm saying like mm-hmm. I, I'm on the side of the vulnerable, and I like to think of myself as like a champion of the underdog. Like that really is my orientation. It's like like old Christian left stuff, you know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like the teachings of Jesus or any, you know, spiritual, um, person of magnitude. I think there's like a ton of similarities, you know, and I respond to all that stuff, but I also believe in like a presumption of innocence. Mm-hmm. I believe in the, the necessity of evidence. Uh, you know, like, yeah. I mean, it's funny that like our, our, our social world is starting to look a lot like our legal system and, I, what I, what worries me about that is, you know, this word victim is getting thrown around a lot and it seems like one way to be empowered is to tell everybody that somebody fucked with you. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, okay. See, this is another complicated road to go down, but like I, I'm on social media a lot, which I know you're not. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Like, yeah. So I, I'm, way, I'm on it way too much. Just Twitter. Okay. But like, I'm, that's my news source. That's my, that's how I aggregate news. I actually find it useful. Uh, but it's also toxic and debilitating. Sure. Um, and what I find based on watching how Twitter responds to these stories is that there is obviously an incentive structure created, especially in social media to, uh, present yourself like this, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to tell stories like these because you get a lot of, uh, empathy and support and clicks and favorites and retweets and you get that dopamine shot. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, it's like two things are true, you know, while it's definitely true that like, it is important if you've been victimized to speak out and stand up for yourself and hold those accountable. It's also true that there is an incentive structure that is probably drawing in people who are, um, you know, there's some sort of hole or Mm -hmm. emotional 
need for attention or um, solace, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's also true. Now you can start to parse it in terms of percentages, like what percentage of people uh, are legitimate and what percentage of people are maybe trying to um, bandage some emotional need. And, you know, I don't know, but it, that this is where I get into the gray area, right? you know? So um, I could talk for hours on topics like these, but one of the things you said about Mr. Rogers that will sort of bring us back to your creative work and um, your latest book is this idea of his um, life project mm-hmm. and how he had like a real sense of mission. Mm-hmm. And I think you have a real sense of mission that I find like super inspiring. And um, I, th- I think it's somewhat rare to be as clear as you are and as confident as you are about what you're doing creatively. Is that, am, am I misapprehending that? No. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if it's really that rare. I think a lot of people get um, maybe ashamed or insecure about their own self-confidence because it's not really, um, being actually, like, although we're sort of in this era of self-esteem, actually being truly confident especially it seems like in this era of Twitter is something that's kind of tacky and puts you at risk for being attacked. Um, so I think maybe there are a lot of other confident, um, writers out there who feel exactly the way that I do about their creative projects. They're just not as vocal about it or, you know, maybe they're more humble or have you always been this way? Is it something you had to like work to arrive at or is it something that you just feel like you are blessed with? It it feels like, uh, I mean, I don't know if I was born with this kind of certainty, but, um, I've, I've never felt like I might not be good enough or anything like as a writer, like, am I like, whoa. Am I good enough? Are people going to like me? It's never been my concern. I mean, I think part, like a, a big part of this is having grown up in the classical music world. Where I mean, I, and I wasn't really in it. I, my parents were teachers. My aunt was in the um, orchestra. Your parents are both uh, like immigrants, musicians mm-hmm. who came who came to the United States as like a it's like political asylum, correct? Mm. They weren't asylum seekers, but they d- were forced to leave. Okay. Uh, they were living in Iran during the revolution. Um, so I was I was really Im- immersed from a young age in in the idea that life's purpose is creative. Like the purpose of a life is to be creative, whether that's like through art or to create change or to create love or whatever. And, um, I, I also started like studying classical music when I was like five, you know, and had an appreciation for stuff that seems inhuman. Like how, how did a human being write this concerto, you know, or like going to the symphony, like, how is this, did, did a real person do this? So I had a real appreciation for the awe and, and genius that, that is, you know, in great art, I mean, art that I love. But it also made learning music made me understand that the way to get there is to work really hard. 
you know, like nobody just locks into it. Um, I mean, maybe that's a popular story when we, when, when we, um, like look at prodigies, like we think Mozart could just, you know, create all this stuff. But the truth is his dad was pushing him really hard from a young age to practice and learn and study and all this stuff. Like, that's what I always say about prodigies. They just started earlier. They started. I mean, I I definitely believe in talent. I mean, there's no question, but I mean, there's talent and then there's effort. I mean, you need both. And I've, I just don't question the talent part. I mean, I, I can be really hard on myself in the effort part and I, I'm probably overshooting, you know, like in terms of discipline and so let, my let's, work let's talk, let's talk about what your actual like schedule, like a lot of my listeners are writers or aspiring writers. So like when you talk about how hard you're working, what does that mean? Are you up at like four in the morning? No, I mean, I, I have a friend who does that. Yeah. Um, when I was working on my year of rest and relaxation, I basically, I, I mean, a, I barely read anything. Um, B, I didn't go anywhere for fun. C, you mean, uh, you mean travel or you mean like, I didn't go out to eat. I like, what do you mean? Like how yeah, austere? I, I mean, like I, I, I rarely took like a couple of hours out of the day to go be frivolous. Um, and writing for me isn't always like sitting with my computer and typing. There's a lot of meditating and like walking meditation and thinking and so you know. so actual seated meditation. Mm, sometimes. And then walking meditation. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm using formal terms for something that's just me living my day. Oh, okay. you know, but um, you know, putzing around. Um, and I was, re- so I was really living in this novel for like a year and a half with very little else going on. And it was completely, uh, I was completely obsessed with it. Um, and I would make schedules for myself like, okay, you know, let's look at the month and let's break it down by weeks and let's break it down by a day and let's break it ba- down by an hour. I mean, not like I had page count goals or anything like that, but I had a system where I wanted, I, I was seeking to understand the project and... And holding yourself accountable? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when you're trying to do something, when you're, when you're trying to build something from scratch, like you don't even have materials. I mean, all I have is the English language, right? I mean, I don't know these people. They're not real. I have to make this entire story up. Um, it can feel really daunting. So having these little mind games that I play with myself to be like, okay, like if I can get to this point by December, then I'll, then I'll know I'm in the right place. Do you outline? Um, in this book, I, I outlined at a couple of points. Um, but those outlines ultimately failed. I found that what I learned in this book was that if I try to exert too much pressure on it, it starts to fall apart and that it actually needed a pretty light touch plot wise. I mean, obviously it's about a woman who doesn't leave her apartment, (laughs) Um, but it, it was a book that sort of revealed itself to me in a way that was very frustrating because I wanted to be working really hard and I ended up overworking 
finding myself having written way off the path of the story and deleting hundreds of pages like a couple of times, backtracking, looking at where I came from, who, like, what is this book? And so having eventually just to surrender to what was already there. And when then when I read up until the point where I had um, gone off the path, I saw that the book was telling me exactly what to do. I just needed to How did you see it? You just just like maybe took a little bit of time away and then came back and reread it and were like, oh, or did somebody help point that out to you or? I just thought about it deeply. I mean, you know, the way that you might think about if you're having trouble in, in your romantic relationship, you know, like you would obsess about it and be analytical and think about it from the other person's perspective and be like, what does this mean? You know, let me look at my whole life. Like, how does this fit in? How do I need to change? Where are the places I need to grow? That's the way I would look at a book, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and the nice thing about a book is you can finish it and <laughs> move on, you know? <laughs> right. Wash your hands and right. never think about it again. And it's something to celebrate as an ending instead of like, you know, right. mour- mourning the death of someone. Or, yeah. Did you know the end when you start? Is that, a, is that a common thread from book to book? Like, do you have to have some sort of like finish line in mind in order to get yeah. started and feel like you have a, a real like uh, sense of direction? Yeah. Not from, not from the first line, but when I'm in in it like once i understand I'm like okay i've developed the story to a certain point I, I get the premise usually the end it whether it's a it's usually an image and that comes to me pretty early on in the writing and that's like you know it always feels like a blessing and sometimes i don't even understand it you know but you honor it yeah you, you know it when it's there yeah and what about starting like do you tend to start with an image too like well how do you get an idea for a book has there been a, a common thread from work to work or is it different Mm, it's always different. It's always different. I mean, McGlue came from an 1850 article oh, right. in, in a newspaper. Eileen came from... That's sort of magical. Oh, that, that was a total gift from God. Yeah. Eileen... Can you, can you explain yeah. that just oh. so people know? Because like, I think people listening might not have context. Like you were at Brown. Yeah, I was, at, I was at Brown and I was just sort of, I don't know, looking, like scrolling through their archive of... Um, periodicals from the mid 19th century in New England, and I'm from New England, so it was all interesting to me. But just for the hell of it, you were doing just this? for just for the hell of it. I didn't. I I can't. I, I spent a lot of time at the library um, working. I don't. I don't even know. This was um, your MFA. Yeah. Yeah. You just said that, I think. But no, you said it. I, I was at Brown. Oh, I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but for so people listening, know you were there to get your MFA. Right. I was a student, and um, with with student access to the library, you get to use their Nexus Lexus or whatever you call it. And um, yeah, I just was. I, I mean, I've always been fascinated by new, like the history of New England. It's where I'm from, and it's not a history that's in my family story. So it's it's different. It's weird. And New England is a pretty fascinating place when you, when you look at the beginning of the Europeans arriving there. Sure. They were totally nuts. You know, I'm reading, uh, I'm about to finish this biography of Henry David Thoreau. And it's like, like he was one of the early naturalists and historians of the, of the region or whatever. But, uh, Margaret Fuller who helped to found the dial, which was that literary magazine, like the transcendentalists. Mm Mm-hmm. There's like this story that I didn't, I, I guess I might've heard once or read once, but had forgotten about how she left and moved to Italy and married this like count 
or something like that. And then she was coming back over to visit family on a boat. And just as the boat was approaching the shores of new England, it ran into like really rough seas and capsized. And it was like horrible. Like, you know, the boat's tipping, everyone's going into the water, it's freezing, people are drowning. And the worst part of the story is that there were all these people on the shore watching it happen. And like, nobody got into a lifeboat. And then on top of it, as like people's belongings started like washing to the shore, they just like scavenged it and took mm. it. And, they, and and the boat was like 300 yards offshore. It wasn't wow. like it was way out there, but it's like such a haunting story Like to go back to like humanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, wow, that's people for you or certain people. Mm-hmm. This boat is going under like Margaret Fuller, like watched her like husband and like, children go under. And then she just like threw herself in and, you know, horrible. So. Sounds, anyway, <laughs> sounds like a good book. Yeah. Um, but history of new England, McGlue, you were flipping through and basically read this. It was like a, a snapshot or a, a summary, right? It was a really just a, like four or five line summary of a case that had been, um, a, a case of this guy named McGlue who had just been acquitted of murder. And it included some details. I mean, that he'd been acquitted on the ca- on the account of murder, the person that he'd killed was named Mr. Johnson. Um, the murder happened in the port of Zanzibar. They were... Um, Where is that? Where is Zanzibar? in um, Tanzania. Okay. Okay. That, make, that sounds right. <laughs> I hope that's true. <laughs> I feel like an idiot. Um, and and that he, the reason he was acquitted was that he he was found to... I mean, I think it was an... It was. It's not a very important case, right? But in in the case, he's acquitted because he was found to be out of his mind at the time that he committed this murder, um, and he was out of his mind because he was in a blackout drunk and had had brain damage or had major head trauma from having jumped off a moving train um, before he had gone off on this um, sea voyage. So, um, I mean, that was the whole story. And, and it did feel like a gift. I mean, it didn't, the the book didn't come at me all at once. It came in through like a very narrow trickle. It was hard to do, but, um, but something in you responded to it. Like I was reading about you and like you were, uh, you are a drinker and then got sober and mm-hmm. were in AA and had like went through the whole sobriety experience. So that, was that speaking to you? Was this totally, a, it was a totally. way for you to explore that stuff. It, it was, a, it was a way for me to explore the my darkest passions and wanting i mean it, it makes me think of this new novel too because it's about a woman who wants to check out i mean that's what mcglue wanted too i mean he wanted it desperately to be drunk all the time right um i mean i was never i was never that kind of drinker that i want i mean i was never kind of like blackout i'll kill someone in my blackout <laughs> drunk but you know i'm someone who's had who's who's felt extremely stressed out by my own mind like basically my entire life so things like alcohol or you know name it like i've i've had to deal with how attractive those substances and whatever behaviors just to can turn be. it like downers like just to turn it off i mean just to make it different you know i mean you can i i can use tv for it too right you know that's a drug. Yeah. Um, I feel like you're like my year of rest and relaxation. It, it sneaks up on you. Um, and I feel like all of your books are about 
like you said, wanting things to be different, reinvention of self. And uh, my year of rest and relaxation, uh, the end of it is very moving. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uplift in, a, in the weirdest way. Like your books work on you. Uh, they work on people in a weird way because you're willing to go into the darkness. And I speak from my own experience creatively trying to write where I'm trying to address dark things but feeling suffocated by it mm-hmm. because I'm like, I'm a person who sort of wants there to be some funny. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to create art that is like mercilessly dark for people that offers no oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I also don't want to shy away from the very real existence of suffering. Uh, how do you do it? Like, do, do you know, can you articulate how you go into these dark places and find the light or the humor or make it breathable for readers? I don't know. Everything's kind of dark. I, I, I'm, I, I don't, I don't really know what people mean when they say that something isn't dark. People are never like, Oh, it's when, when you say something is light, what you mean is it is frivolous and has no real meaning, right? That it's just fun, but it doesn't matter. So, or maybe the counter to that would be heavy, but heavy connotes like something that's a burden that's going to weigh you down. That doesn't sound very, it, it, it's, it's not something that inspires growth. It's just something that you're going to have to bear with. And dark is, you know, I think we're all scared of the devil, blah, blah, blah. But like dark is where everything happens, you know, dark in, in, when, in the light of day, people don't, I mean, that's why it's so crazy when someone gets shot in the middle of the day, because they're like, it was, it was noon, right. you know, <laughs> right. but if it happens at night, you're like, oh yeah, like, of course. Right. Um, so everybody has to act right when, when they're visible. And I think fiction, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I think I'm kind of splitting into saying two different things, but basically I just think darkness means interesting now it just <laughs> it's kind of lost it's true meaning it doesn't mean dracula you know it, it, and it doesn't mean um satan it means reality yeah it just means reality <laughs> but and i and i think that's why fiction is f- fiction whether it's literature or film or whatever me- medium it is is it is o- the interesting things are often dark you know comedy is often very very dark right um that's where our feelings are complicated is in that dark is in the darkness. And that's where, you know, there's all of the private, all all our privacy lives in the darkness. And when we share art, that privacy gets to be spoken to and, and somehow has a, an outlet for another, another life. It's that privacy is given more room. You know, and I think in that space, art can be really moving. Yeah. You know, if it's rendered well, it is possible to write some really dark stuff that people just go, oh, this is just like, it's too dark. Yeah. It's making me feel sad. There's nothing, there's nothing, um, redemptive about it or I don't know. It, it's, there's not one way to do it, but it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. And I also, you know, that, I think that's really true. And I, m- my mind instantly goes to Brad Easton Ellis. Um, when you, when you talk about like, well, is if a book is too dark and overwhelming in its darkness, like is the, the reader, 
the reader will, will disconnect from it. And I think less than zero is a book that, um, that I can point to as being like, that book is so brilliantly playing the line. Like, I, I feel like that book is like, I'm about, I, as I re read it and I reread re it recently this year, um, I'm like, I'm about to step, like I'm about to bail, you know, like I'm about, and, and then it's the, the darkness itself. I mean, I'm about to bail because I'm like, who cares? Right. Like this kid, this rich kid, these friends who, you know, these meaningless lives. I mean, like, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? But then it's the the real darkness that's like, oh, finally something real. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I'm in, and I'm flabbergasted by what's happening to me emotionally. Like, I actually can't describe it to myself, and that's like so exciting when that happens in literature. He wrote that when he was like what twenty? Nineteen? Yeah, he was a he was in college. Yeah. That's a pretty good book for a it's college a, kid. Oh my god, it's a pretty good <laughs> book for anybody. Anybody, yeah. Yeah. I do. You ever, do you ever, I read the Informers? Is that this like the connected stories? I haven't read. I mean, I haven't read uh, his stuff in a long time, but I I love that book too. He's great, and uh, he's he's his American Psycho was something that I held in my mind as I was writing my Year of Rest and Relaxation. Interesting, because you know it's funny that you bring him up because I was thinking of him. I was talking to another female writer who wrote uh, a New York book with a female protagonist that felt kind of like Brett Easton Ellisy, but from a female perspective. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I didn't want to make like a, a too cheap comparison, but like, I could feel that in there. It's a compliment. Oh, uh, I mean, it's an honor. <laughs> yeah. Somebody can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I also felt like, I don't know. I feel like the end of the book is so great. And different than Brett Easton Ellis in some way. Like it made me actually like emotional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think there are moments like that. And again, I haven't read his work in a long time and I read it when I was at a different stage in my life. So maybe I would read it now and feel a similar emotion. Uh, my memory is not awesome for like what's on the page, but um, I don't know. It, it's to, the book to me, like if I were going to diagnose it, uh, it just feels like a, a writer working through her characters to figure out um, or to reaffirm a sense of purpose mm -hmm. as a creative person. That was moving to me. Is mm -hmm. that anywhere near accurate? <laughs> I mean, that was the thread that I responded to anyway, mm -hmm. you know, like this, like responding to other artists, thinking of herself as a human being in the world. Um, I don't know. It was life affirming and, that was it like it just felt a little unexpected and it was uh it was really beautifully done. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm glad I mean whatever reading that spoke to you that's wonderful. <laughs> You're like I had no such intentions, but if that's the experience you had. <laughs> well, I not I was not really trying to manipulate you, you know. Yeah. Um I was just following the character's journey. But what moves me about the end of the book is that it reminds me that we don't get to live that long mm. and that it's like, okay, my life is really short and the people that I love, I really love them. I will be, I will miss them in some sense when I'm not here and that they are part of me mm -hmm. and, um, and that all of my like fear and defensiveness and isolation 
that that separates me from that love is such a shame you know even though it might be necessary in some ways i mean in retrospect i don't think i'm going to be on my deathbed being like i wish i'd spent more time alone like writing you know novels or it's interesting i was but wait actually yeah. i'm sure i'll 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 think i wish i could have written one more book Right. But not, I wish I had spent more time alone. I mean, that's sort of the catch-22 about being a writer. You, you, yeah. need, you need the solitude. Yeah. You can't make art when things are super crazy. No. You need it to be sort of quiet and boring and isolated. Um, but I get it. I mean, I have a crazy family with like all kinds of demands and um, jobs. And, you know, it's like just the, the speed of life is really intense sometimes for mm -hmm. me. And I was listening to something yesterday it's like a podcast and this woman's talking about how she was talking to a hospice worker uh, who had like, you know, um, shepherded many people as they've like passed away. And she was talking about how the hospice workers hear a lot of people's uh, final thoughts, like mm -hmm. regrets and so on as they um, prepare for death. And one of the most common refrains is like, I wish I had been truer to myself. Mm. I wish that uh, I had not tried to conform to the expectations of other people or uh, the expectations of society so much. I wish I hadn't been so afraid because I think fear drives a lot of that sort of behavior. And so you hear that and you go, like take stock. Like my, mm -hmm. I'm 40, almost 43, like clock's ticking. Mm -hmm. It's going to go fast. Mm -hmm. Who knows what, you know, I could step in front of a truck tomorrow. You mm -hmm. know, it's like that sort of thinking. And I was like, am I being true to myself? Because I often fantasize about living a simpler life mm -hmm. in a less hectic place. And yet I'm always like, where would I go? Like right. I, I'm sort of like LA. It's like this weird, I don't know. It just feels kind of like a, there's a beauty to it that I really respond to. Like creative people at the edge of the country, like wanting to, and I like the, the energy of it. Um, but I'm also like, man, what if I lived like near some mountains in a house cheap place like mm -hmm. near college, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Um, and then it's like, well, what is my truest self? Like, what is my mission? Uh, what is my purpose? I guess is maybe the better way to put it. And, uh, do you have a, I mean, you have a sense of that you're on this earth to write books and make art, create, bring people a little bit of, uh, solace and enjoyment. I mean, like, how do you um, articulate it to yourself? Like, do you feel like you're being true to yourself? <laughs> I feel like, um, it's been kind of impossible to be true to myself until recently. Why? Um, because I was stuck in um, self-loathing. I had a lot of self-loathing um, from like adolescence onward. And it took, you know, until my 30s to be like, oh, that was in an I was looking at myself in an incorrect way, you know? Um, but it, it was so, it was like part of my, the way that my brain worked. Yeah. It's like deep, like neural. Yeah. Um, and it kept me safe in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it, it's also sad to, to look back on my entire youth and be like, Oh, why did I hate myself so much? Why did I hate my, um, consciousness? You know, why did I always think that there was something wrong with me? And, and I also, so, so there was that. And I also had a lot of rage because 
I would often look around and be like, why is everybody acting like shit is okay? <laughs> like shit is not okay. Right. This is like, like even in the most abstract level, how is it that we even fucking exist? How are we not all freaking out about it? Why aren't we talking about it? It's like sleepwalking. I sometimes feel like that. You're just like, I'll, I'll like be out in my car or something in Los Angeles. I'll look around and I'll just be like, everyone's just in a trance. I'm often in it. Yeah. Like, mo like majority of the time. I don't think you can necessarily survive or function in the human world if you're like constantly at like that pitch. But I I'm right there with you. Like yeah. I'm like, I was just texting with a friend the other day. I was like, I'm sort of stuck on the whole I'm alive thing. I can't mm -hmm. believe it. <laughs> I, like, I can't shake it. You know, like to me, it's like, I, I can't imagine that it will ever not be my central preoccupation as mm -hmm. a person and an artist. Like mm -hmm. I'm constantly trying to reckon with that. And I think in a healthy way, like they feel like it feels like a very healthy obsession, you know? Um, but I think, I think it is a healthy obsession, but I think that it's completely counter to what children are taught to think about i mean it's like the whole thing about race what i got from having been a child was anxiety is bad you know mm. because if you have anxiety you're annoying to other people right and like sure that's true but deal with it it's the it's the shared existential anxiety that we are all feeling and if and if somebody doesn't feel safe existing there's probably a good reason for that and it doesn't mean that you're mentally ill you know, and I think that like, if there's any kind of message in my work that I would hope would come across, it's that if you're feeling weird about being alive, it's not because you need medication. It's because it is fucking weird, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's like, I'm with you, you know? I think, but I think that's why your work has landed. And I feel like a lot of people respond strongly to it. Like the people that reach us, like it really has, um, the kind of impact that I think a writer hopes to have, you know, people have powerful experiences reading your work and I think it provides them solace and, and again, works on them, um, in subtle ways. It's not necessarily like this really explicit, like flashing neon message, but it's all there in the work and it's like subterranean and it sneaks up on you a little bit. Mm -hmm. That was my experience. And, um, I think it's noble. And I, I guess like from a personal standpoint, like what I want, um, is a bit more of your clarity and confidence. Like I'm one of these people who can self denigrate like reflexively or self deprecate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's my mode. And I sort of bag on my own creative work too much. Mm -hmm. I joke about it. I've been trying to write a book for like a decade and just like wrestling with this thing. But it's, uh, it's trying to walk that line between darkness and light and trying to bring humor into a situation without, uh, undermining it or being silly, you know, silly in a mm. bad way. It's a struggle for me. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. And this might be out of line. No. But like, if you're trying to, if you've been trying to write a book for a decade, <laughs> why are you seeking out literature by other living writers that you admire and trying to understand them and spending your time trying to get how they work? Um, I, I think I find inspiration from it. I think I'm genuinely curious. Like if you're asking me why I do the show, mm -hmm. like I think my experience as a reader is always, I, I, I always think to myself, like, what's going on with them? Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the person who wrote the work and I have a deep sense of, um, love and empathy for people who make sense of the world through writing. 
and through literature. I think it's such a, um, interesting and noble way to do it. Uh, an honest way, you know, there's like a, it's like, it feels like an honest grappling to me. And, and I guess also there's just like this genetic component. I'm wired for this sort of thing. And I feel like this is my tribe. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is a way for me to learn from other people, but also to be of service. And I like that feeling where it's not just about me and my particular aims, but it's like, I get to, to give back to the community, get to know people in the community, learn. I like to have these conversations like this is, I, you know, I joke, it's not entirely true, but I joke like this is my social life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but the truth is that in my actual, like more traditional social life, I don't have conversations like this. Mm -hmm. And it bothers me because usually there's too many people and there's phones right? <laughs> and everyone's like doing this. And then they, they step away to get a drink and you're talking to somebody else. And it always feels like I'm skimming the surface mm -hmm. when what I really want is not necessarily like a come to Jesus talk with every person because mm -hmm. that's exhausting, but just like a meaningful exchange. Even if it's like, we're just shooting the shit and joking about something and laughing for an hour. Uh, I'm hungry for that. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this, I feel like it's sort of this trick that I'm pulling. Like people come over and talk to me <laughs> and it's the greatest thing. And I can't stop doing it because I get so much from it. But I also think it might be an elaborate procrastination ritual. Mm. Uh, I've had that thought and, um, I don't know. It's sort of complicated, but I guess I look to other writers for inspiration and solace and to learn, but I think I respond to what I think you're getting at, which is that I need to do it my way and have more faith in my own. Is that what you're saying? I mean, I'm not trying to put <laughs> words in anybody's mouth, but I know for me, yeah. I could never do what you do, Brad. Like I, my, sorry, my stomach is grumbling, but, yeah. um, I could never do what you do because it would make it would other people's work and the way that they think, and then the way that I imagine they, how they work in their process would get into my head. And every time I would sit down, I'd be like, well, Sheila Hetty does this, or, <laughs> you know, Josh Barkan, whoever that is, does, does this, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, Um, Just looking at books on Brad's shelf, that this would be a huge distraction. And like you said, a writer needs solitude and quiet and like, space to be bored and frustrated and you know scratching at the walls yeah part of the part of what's cool about that kind of torture is that you have to come up with your own solutions and find the inner strength and for me if i i, I would just be like oh that's lame that this thing i've come up with is lame because so and so you know spent 40 years figuring out how to do blah 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 right. and I, I don't know. Part uh, Hanya Nagahara wrote a 700 page book in a year. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my, <laughs> you hear these stories yeah. I and mean, they vary. Some people it's like this marathon and like they get, you know, comparing, it, I just think comparing one's work to someone else's is a recipe for disaster. Right. And I don't, I mean, maybe you have really good boundaries and you don't do that, but I know like, you know, I'm, I'm in a relationship with another novelist. Yeah. And we talk about who I have interviewed, right? Yeah. I mean, Luke Goebel, he's an incredible writer. He's a really, di I'd say like, we have some things in common, but we have a completely different process, Yeah. you know? And, um, as much as I like admire and am fascinated by his process, sometimes I'm like, wait a second, I need to, like, I, I, I need like a really hard line of this is yours and this other stuff is mine because I, if I feel like ownership of my uh 
process is getting is starting to fade you know i'm gonna be less certain and and that would be horrific yeah you yeah know? because whatever you're doing it's working for you like you're generative um i would say prolific uh, yeah you know you're making books uh they feel done <laughs> i sometimes feel like people you know might rush things to publication or, or i don't know they don't feel fully baked but like you're you're doing really good work and you're doing it regularly and it's always scary i mean i think that's th that's the thing it's like i i've never had a child um but what i I mean, when I, what I hear women say is like, you forget the pain because of the incredible love you have for your baby once it's born. My wife can confirm this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, which is such an amazing trick. Yeah. And I think that the, the same thing for, is true for writing a book. I mean, once you see it and it's, you know, perfect, whatever that means, you forget how awful <laughs> right. it was all of those times where you didn't know what you were doing you, you didn't, thought it was lost yeah like i don't i don't know how to do this like and and also just like the heaviness of the task like making something out of nothing um but it's so it's whenever i start a book there's this kind of mediated t terror that i feel which i i think is kind of like the drug i'm addicted to now um like I'm, I just started writing a new book, and I don't, I don't think it's going to become um, a full-fledged project like my year of rest and relaxation will until after this tour is over because I have no time. But like the the beginnings of that, like oh my god, <laughs> like this is about to take over my life. Yeah. I'm I'm about to find like go places I've never been. Mostly, you know, I'm willing to do it, but it's not. I don't know where this shit is coming from. Why am I being drawn to this character? Why am I being drawn to this period of history in this place? Why is this voice coming to me? Do you is feel like, are you, are you somebody who you, you believe in ghosts and you feel like you, like you could possibly be in contact with like a McGlue, like the spirit of McGlue, you know, like, is that, is there like a mysticism to your art? Like, do you, there has been, and there, there has been, it's not always like, Oh, this is the, this, the voice of a, person who has died but there's a you know the one book where i didn't feel much mysticism in the writing was eileen hmm. and and that like this is well documented but that was basically you saying to yourself i've got to try to or i'm going to try as an experiment to write something that's more commercial mm -hmm. or in line with like um uh, broad appeal or whatever right which you... which ended up being kind of a joke because when i went to try to sell the book people were like oh no this is way <laughs> too, too <dark>. disgusting <laughs> you can't you, no matter what you have you can't like i don't think you can write who you're not you know what i'm saying like you, you are who you are as are an you, artist are you calling me disgusting no <laughs> <laughs> you're filthy I'm just kidding uh but no but i like i think that's actually an interesting art project you know you got this book it was like a how to write a novel like how to write a page turner like, it was called the 90 day novel right and it's like a patented um way to write a novel in 90 a, a draft of a novel in i bought 90 that days. book like on my kindle uh -huh. after reading an interview with you I ju i'm just recalling this and i like tried to start reading it and i was like oh, I, I don't think i can do this like did you actually follow it i followed you know what i, I followed for the first 30 days because those were the days of planning uh-huh 
And it was like, I knew it, it was a strange period in my life. I was doing something really unnatural. I mean, I was like developing character by doing like free writing. I mean, I, I come from experimental yeah. short story, you right. know, like this was a very weird thing for me to do. Be like, I think my character's motivation is, it was so artificial, but, but you know, it, it's, like you said, it's impossible not to be yourself. So Eileen was born as like a total moshfag character. But um, what what that book actually helped with was like this the buying when you when you're writing a novel. I mean, I, I shouldn't say you. I mean, when I'm writing a novel, um, I have to buy into the delusion or slash accept the truth that I'm doing something that already uh, that pre-exists it's just a matter of time and that my my work is to um you mean the book already the exists. book already exists like this this new book that i'm just starting it already exists in its totality i i'm just listening for it and it's my job to listen and write down write Channel. it down be like okay is this what it is and i know that it'll it'll be right It'll either not exist or it will, but I think I'm pretty sure it will because I al I'm already in love with it. Hmm. And um, but what the 90-day novel did was kind of recast that sense of purposefulness by being like, this isn't about your book. It's about this character. It's it's a really character-motivated way the 90-day novel is like a way of planning a book i mean it's all about the hero's mission and i had never really thought of that that way before so it was interesting but i bet it strengthened you as a writer i mean writing eileen was like it was like a crash course in novel writing i had no i had never even thought about the shape of a novel before no matter what people say about like you know studying uh like doing, I had, I was like a creative writing concentrator at Barnard and I went to an MFA program in creative writing and did fiction. And then I went to the Stegner Fellowship at Stanford in fiction. Um, I'd already written Eileen by the time I was at Stanford, but nobody ever talked about the shape of a novel. Right. It's like this weird trade secret that you only get if you study screenwriting I, I was just gonna say that because i've written a little bit for tv and have read like save the cat and like all these like how-to screenwriting books in the sid field and that it does teach you mm -hmm. that there are certain expectations on the part of a reader or somebody who's watching a movie uh in terms of what happens and what the experience is going to be and there's i think there's a lot more latitude in a novel than there is in a screenplay but to to completely discount that as having any value, even if you're writing like ultra literary fiction mm -hmm. in an experimental vein, I think is a mistake. I think you can learn a hell of a lot about the mechanics of storytelling from studying people who work in this more defined form, you know, where you're like, it's 110 pages, something's got to happen by page 10, something's mm -hmm. got to happen by page 30, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, just that mechanics. It's like watchmaking or something, you know, I found it, I still find it helpful. Mm hmm in fact, I should probably, uh, lean on it more. Maybe, you know, just to kind of help, uh, 
I think what it does is maybe it wakes up the part of me that is um, thinking about the reader's experience mm. as opposed to just like right. my own stuff. <laughs> yeah, I totally know what you mean. I totally know what you mean. Like I've, I've used this word to describe the, the kind of fiction that I grew up on and that got me to want to do this for my life. And, and, and it's that it's kind of solipsistic. When, when a piece of writing is more about its own language than it is about the reader's experience, it's, I don't know, it can get kind of obnoxious to yeah. me in a certain way. And, and I think it, you, you, you nailed it. I mean, it's because the writer is just making it about the writing um, and not the actual like, consciusness of the reader. And communicate. The it's not, they're not communicating. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's easy to get lost in. And, uh, you, you seem to have it figured out. I, uh, I really loved your book and I appreciate you coming over here. I'm glad I got a chance to meet Me you. Too. We don't live that far apart, right? We live no. In, and, uh, I want to at some point meet Luke in person. We should all get together. I mean, yeah, he, uh, I was telling you this at the top and I, I'll say it again. Like when I talked to him over the transom, I really felt like, wow, like what a great guy. Mm -hmm. uh, so congratulations to you guys. Congratulations Thank on this you. book and uh, have fun on tour. Thanks. Good luck with the next thing. And uh, hopefully I'll see you before too long. Yeah. I love that. Okay, folks, there you have it. That is Otessa Moshfeg. Her new novel is called My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Available from Penguin Press. I don't think she's on the internet. I don't think there's a website. There's no social media. So just read her book. It's called My Year of Rest and Relaxation. You can read the other books too. There's a lot for you to get through. So uh, very nice to meet her. Enjoyed it. Hope you guys liked that conversation. If you would like to uh, write to me, if you have thoughts, you can reach me at letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to get the Other People app, that is free. Oh, and thanks to Stereo Total and uh, Kill Rockstars for the theme song music and the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. I'm doing things out of order today. Uh, all episodes of this program are free. Don't forget, it's all free. If you would like to support the program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a few bucks in the hat. If you would like to, what else? If you want to listen to the archives, it's free. It's all there. Okay, I'm going to walk outside and evaluate my environment. Check and see if anything's on fire. Okay. Okay.